You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 246, for August 10th, 2022. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we bring on a guest to discuss whether or not you actually need a graduate degree to be successful in CRM. So get ready to brush up that resume, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Hello. Heather in California. Hi, everyone. And Andrew in California. Hey, guys. How's it going? Doug over in Scotland. Hey, everyone. And I am up in Canada still for the last time on this recording anyway, up in Banff National Park. And I got to say, if you've never been up here, it is just eye candy for every single direction that you look at all times. It is just the mountains and everything are just so completely epic. And I've been in the Rockies, which is, this is like the Northern end of them, but it just doesn't seem like it's like this. It's just so amazing. So anyway, we've got a guest today and I'm going to let Heather introduce the guest because it's her topic today and somebody that uh, she works with. So go ahead, Heather. All right. Thank you, Chris. So I thought I would bring a colleague on to the show because I think we do a lot of talking, or at least in CRM, not necessarily on this podcast, but it does come up occasionally, about how M- an MA or a graduate degree is your gateway to becoming a manager in CRM. And I think for the most part, that can be true. But I think it's sometimes because we've actually, it's been like a self-fulfilled prophecy. We've made that true. Mm-hmm. We tell people yeah. that that's you, that's what you need in order to be successful as a manager in CRM. And there's so many different traits that make a good manager and make a good project manager and people manager that have nothing to do with a graduate degree. And so I think that, um, you know, obviously there are some things that you get from a graduate degree that you, you don't get from an a, a undergraduate, but I think that what makes somebody a really good manager, specifically in CRM, there's just as many traits that you're not going to learn in graduate school. And so I wanted to bring somebody on who's a dear friend, but also a colleague who is such an excellent example of somebody who has a a bachelor's. And in fact, I've kind of joked around with her saying, literally, we just got to get you into some program where we can just get those letters behind your name because (laughs) she has the experience. She has the knowledge, the know-how. All we need are those letters behind her name, but she's so darn busy. It's difficult to make it happen because she is so successful. And I wanted to give, uh, give some hope to people. Not that a graduate degree isn't something that people should want to aspire to, but it is not something that can be an obstacle if you don't have it. And mm-hmm. I think, honestly, I don't know of anyone in the business who's a better example of this than Linda. So I'm going to let Linda we just talk a little bit about her career path and we'll get a, kind of more into the nitty gritty of it. But maybe, Linda, if you could just talk about your, you know, just your your path from the beginning of archaeology to where you are now. Oof, that's a long one, Heather, <laughs> for the intro. I've been doing CRM professionally for 16 years. I started as a tech and I got fortunate that I got a position while I was still going to school. And, you know, I did all the things that techs do, you know, field work, you know, record searches, SLF searches, all those things. And I realized 
that I was already hitting that ceiling for someone with a BA. And then an opportunity came and I just smashed that ceiling through. And now I'm doing project management for LA County, San Bernardino County, Riverside County, and supporting projects up north and down south. And that's all with the BA. And I'm also a registered archaeologist with the RPA. There are just opportunities out there that just happened to show up when I was ready for it. Yeah. I'm very fortunate. So I think that if I remember correctly, you've had the gamut of experiences. You've had the experience of being a tech and hitting that ceiling and being frustrated and not knowing that you have these capabilities, but not being seen as having those capabilities. And then you've had the experience of being seen that way and being given a chance. And, you know, we're kind of getting into the heady part right off the bat, but I don't know, just maybe talk a little bit about your experience in the beginning and how that felt, you know, how, at what point, or did you ever think, you know what, I'm, I'm more than this. Like I can totally do more than this and not just, you know, how some people get very, oh, they get uh, jaded and they're like, you know, I could do that guy's job better. No, problem. no, like truly knowing I have the skill set and I know I can do more. You know, to be honest with you, I never felt like I knew or was confident enough to say like, I know this and I can do more. It was always like, give me something and I will get it done. If I have to learn this on my own time, I will do it. In the beginning, I faced a lot of adversity from people who knew that I was coming in without any field school experience. And that was fine. I did it the hard way. And then I was fortunate enough along the way to meet mentors throughout my career, whether they were just solely field archaeologists or archaeologists without a degree, senior archaeologists, PhDs, MAs. I always tapped into those resources, whatever they were good at. I would ask them, how can I be better at this? And they'd spend some time and show me how to do it. And all of those things that I've learned along the way have helped shape who I am now. And in the sense that, you know, I'm more empathetic to people who come in who don't necessarily have a master's degree because I can relate. And I show them the ways that I've learned how to be a successful archaeologist in whatever aspect they're at in their career at that time. It, it takes time because not every choice that I made along the way was the right choice, but I learned from it. The reason I am where I am right now is all the mistakes I've made along the way. Failure helps to improve your career. There were people who are degreeists, meaning they wouldn't give me work because all I had was a BA. Yeah. Not trying to find a solution. For example, you can't be on the report because you only have a BA. Well, I'll draft the report, put my name on the report and put your name as a reviewer. That's one way to bypass it. And that's what I do. I may not have the, the degree that you need to be you know, recognized by the Secretary of Interior Standards, but I have found ways to get by. And all of these things, I don't think people think about when they're hiring people and they only look at the, the degree, the master's, the PhD. Yeah. It's actually a fallacy. You know, I think it's just either it's ignorance where people think you have to have that MA on every report or that you have to have them as like a primary author or whatever. But I think a lot of times it is people just not being supportive of helping others and acknowledging others work. And it is a degreeist type of attitude. The company that we work at, we put every everybody that contributes significantly to the report goes on that report. There are companies that just put one person and that person could be their MA and they may not have written almost 90% of the work, right? 90% of the report, but their name goes on there. And 
you know, it might be a stylistic thing, but our team, we don't, we don't do that. But everybody's name goes on the report. And if you contribute Con- and it allows people to, to, you know, it gives them that confidence and it also, you know, allows them to build up their, their resume. And the more that they are on reports, the more respected they're going to be. But this idea that you, the only author that you can have on a report has to have an MA is actually not true. There are some things like permits and things like that, that, that uh, require the MA, but not reports across the board at all. I mean, I've, I've had reports where I've drafted the report and the senior reviewer with a master's or PhD would take my name off the report because I only had a BA. So wrong. You know, (laughs) let me, I mean, there, that is all, I mean, valid, right. For sure. But let me ask you a question from just like a career standpoint. I mean, having your name on a report and being able to do things like that. Yes, you're right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things we, we should be putting whoever contributed to the report, you know, on the report. There shouldn't be any restrictions around that. It, it shouldn't be a thing. But my question in the end is, I mean, you've been doing this for 16 years. What are your career goals such that you might be looking for your name to be on reports to get credit for those kinds of things that you're doing? It, it, would that actually help your career? You know what I mean? Would that would yeah. that get you to where you want to be? I, I mean, when we scope for a project, one of the things they look for is a company that has staff that has a resume that has experience working with that specific agency. So if you've never had your name on a report, there's nothing to back up the fact that you've worked for this specific agency doing all these reports for those many years. Right. So even if at a at a smaller scale, say for example, you contributed to a report, that you can put on your resume and add that to the proposal. And then when we complete our projects, we add our resumes or attach our resumes to show that the people reading the reports will know like, okay, so these are the people that worked with it. And they can see a track record of how many reports I've worked in LA County throughout my career. So they're substantiating my position as the lead for that project. It's really interesting that the the, the places you guys are submitting these to are like actually looking at reports and whose names are on them. And, you know, because I, I've submitted for projects too, and, you know, like BLM projects in Nevada and even California and, and forest service projects and things like that. You always have to include the resumes of the people that you're going to have working on there. But also I've literally never had anybody say, Oh, you know, it doesn't say what, what function this person held on the project, right? If you say you contributed to the project, maybe you were a field uh, crew chief, maybe you were a field director, something like that. You know, your degree is right on the front. So they know what degree you have, Mm -hmm. but it seems like it's never really been a factor, even, even in BLM permitting in Nevada, it, you know, where, where that really, the rubber hits the road right there. You need to have the right credentials and the right work experience in certain areas to be on or get a BLM permit as a company or even as a person. And even then it doesn't seem to really matter what your function was somewhere, just that you worked somewhere and you have the experience in that area. You know what I mean? So it's really interesting to me, the agencies you guys are talking about. Yeah, there are some agencies that absolutely, I mean, we just ran into, there's one, I'm not going to say who it is, but just had a recent experience. They specifically wanted to know who was actually authoring reports, who was Mm -hmm. not just in the field. And, you know, we all know, I mean, just like anything in, in any business, you know, you hand in a resume, very few people actually really check up on it, but for the times that they do, and then there are some res, some agencies that do look for, especially if we're, so when you're putting in a proposal, you're putting in proposals with project managers and project leads. 
And yeah. so that's usually where they're looking to see what that person's experience is commensurate with the position we are proposing that they have in that project. So, you know, it's it's difficult to say yeah. that somebody was a project lead when they're not even on the report. And if that report is, we let's say we list a project, and a lot of times when you're proposing, you're listing projects within that agency that you've done for that agency. And if they look and they don't even see the person's name on there, but yet we're saying that they're capable of being a project lead. People do look at it specifically agencies that have their own like dedicated archeologist. Mm-hmm. They those things. So, yeah. but I, you're right. I mean, a lot of times you could get, nobody's going to even look at it. They don't even look at the resumes. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I guess there could be other ramifications too. And it's, it's probably beneficial that you work for, you know, a larger company versus a smaller one, because at a smaller one, if they're, trying to go for certain projects where they need a certain number of, you know, graduate degrees on staff, you know, to be able to justify, you know, whatever the agency's requirements are, you may be out of a job, even though you're really good or whatever the case may be. If they need somebody else at that level, at that salary level that has a graduate degree just so they can win other projects, well, their hands are kind of tied. You know what I mean? But at a larger company, somebody without a graduate degree can probably, succeed, you know, like you have, Linda, and continue on and just, you know, continue to do great work and and continue to improve and yet not necessarily need that graduate degree for that reason anyway, for for keeping your job. (laughs) I I think it's it's demoralizing too. I think that people get frustrated in this business when they're not acknowledged. And I think that's a lot of the reason why people leave because they are looked at lowly because they have some, I mean, some people look at them that way. Obviously I don't, nobody on this podcast does, but there are people that treat people that way um, when they don't have a graduate degree. And Hey, to be fair, there are people with bachelors that treat people with MAs badly too, because they have this assumption that, you know, they're, they're just book knowledge and and don't have the field experience or whatever, but it goes both ways. Yeah. It goes both ways, but You know, I think it is demoralizing when you're not getting acknowledged. And I think just for that reason alone, forget the agency thing, for that reason alone, in order to encourage people to continue to grow and continue to pursue other aspects of archaeology and not just field, you have to start making those moves as a company. Right. All right. You know what? I think let's go ahead and take a break because I think Doug and Bill are going to open this up a little bit <laughs> and and they're just we're not going to have a chance to respond. So I'd rather just open up with you guys on the other side and then we will have a chance to continue that discussion. Let's do that and we'll see you guys back in a minute. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
Welcome back to episode 246 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And we are talking with Linda, who works with Heather, and we're talking about you know, how you can be successful without a graduate degree, but then also some of the, some of what a, what a graduate degree does get you and, and how at some point in your career, you might have to get one just for, you know, certain things to kind of kick in. As we were nearing the end of that last discussion, Bill and Doug's hands went up virtually <laughs> on our side and they had some things to say. Doug is on the top of my list here, so I'm going to let him go first. Doug, why don't you uh, hit us with your comment? Yeah, it was uh, it was to comment on what Heather said. And just to say, we have some data to back it up. The whole idea that a lot of people, you know, leave the profession because of a sort of lack of respect. Mm-hmm. We did that with Profile in the Profession. We surveyed former archaeologists. It's not the largest of sample sizes, but it's pretty good. And most people would think that the number one reason is money. And it's, I think money... Money is one of it, but people are allowed to choose multiple reasons. And usually it's something else. And usually actually you could probably sum it up as like, I don't get paid enough for this stuff. (laughs) But it's the stuff that really drives people out. And I think there was maybe a couple of months back, by a couple of months, maybe a year ago, I think this blew up on one of the Facebook groups for techs as well. It's like, you know, why did people leave? And a lot of it is like just a range of different things, but a good portion is sort of like respect. And so there's some good data out there on Heather. I'd also just like to add a comment of like, you know, some people also don't just look down on like not having a degree, but also like the type of degree you have, like the Mm -hmm. the amount of snobbery you get for like, Oh, they have a degree. You know, they, they, they got their degree from, Oh, I'm sure Andrew probably gets it a lot as well for like (laughs) his students. Like where he's probably heard some horror horror stories of like snobbery of like, oh, they got a degree from, you know, a community college. It's constant, but, but uh, it, we crush them with our skill set. You know what I mean? Like over, over the years, what's been nice is is I think I've gotten a little notoriety in a positive manner for once in terms of our uh, our department doing very, very well because I have like an arm, a literal army of ex-students who basically are making the CRM firms in Southern California tick, you know, mm-hmm. but your point is very well taken, Doug, that yeah, it's just constant. And I have a million stories about like hilariously looked down upon because I'm at a two-year school. Uh, I just have a sort of end with a quick question to Linda. I mean, how have you, have you run into a bit of that and how have you sort of dealt with it in your career? I've, I've encountered uh, many instances where someone finds out that I'm leading a large scale survey that I only have a BA and they have a master's and they do kind of shady things. You know, they'll leave me stranded by myself in the desert or they'll throw me under the bus because (laughs) I'm doing better at what they're supposed to do with their masters. And I'm like, that's fine. My work will prove my capabilities. And, you know, and to go back to the community college, I went to community college. I did it because it was Mm -hmm. the most practical thing for me at that time to uh, finance my education. And then I um, transferred to UCLA. So having, you know, that community college experience was very helpful in shaping who shaping me and learning, you know, you don't necessarily need to go to a straight four-year university to have credibility. You can come yeah. for much less and do much more than most. Yeah. I would say one, one good word 
for Linda and for, and I think a lot of times for people that go to community college, I, I went to community college first too, and that is scrappy. And when people have grit and they're scrappy, they're going to be more successful in just about any that they you know go after, but specifically in archaeology, because it does require so much from you that you don't even, there's just no way that they could even, you know, prepare you for in school. And you have to be able to, you know, take what's coming at you and, and deal with it. And Linda is, you know, really a prime example of that. I think there's other skill sets. Like I want to talk a, a little bit about what are those skill sets that somebody who has a BA would make them successful in CRM without an MA? So I have an idea, but I first I'd like to see what Linda says before I put my two cents in. Communication, being able to communicate effectively, being honest and saying, can you help me because I don't know this? And then relying, going after people that you can see are really good at what they do and not judging them based on, oh, you know, this person's doesn't have a degree because I've worked with people that didn't have a degree in archaeology, but were amazing field archaeologists and just tapping into those resources and going, you know, understanding that just because you have a master's or a PhD doesn't necessarily mean you're capable. You're more capable than someone that doesn't have a degree or has a lesser degree. Yeah, exactly. I think and a few other things that, you know, that you just can't teach in college and nobody's going to in a graduate to, you know, graduate program. These are like personal skill sets that you either have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you have to be able to build those things or know that you need them. And that is, you know, first of all, being good to work with, being fun, making Linda is amazing at making the field fun for people and not looking at how, what happens out in the field and during a project, how that makes her look but constantly looking at what can she do to help elevate the people that are working with her. What at the end of the project, where is everybody at when they started with you as a manager, when they started with you in the beginning of the project? I mean, I think a good manager looks at a project and looks at the different tasks that need to happen and, and looks at opportunities to grow each person that's on their staff at that time. And Linda is, is very good at that. And I think that not only, inspires loyalty and makes people just want to work harder and they they are on this one track towards a common goal but they actually you know they they have this confidence they feel that somebody is bought into them and i think that that is something you can't teach in school and that to me that if somebody has that that quality uh, it's going to make them you know successful manager with or without a graduate degree um, I have a story that can go back to that. Back when I started in 2006, I joined one of the large-scale surveys for um, Solar Project, and I was part of a 16-team survey group. At that time, we were surveying across the landscape, and I think the field director was trying to figure out who to make the leads for each team that they would split up into four. And you know, one of the the, the tasks that I was given was to be the the camera person take the notes on the photo log, take the photos, and then go back to my line. I was mm-hmm. like, great, I'm going to master this. I'm going to be the, the, the damn best photographer in this team, and I'm going to make sure we're going to finish this strong. So, you know, well, when someone calls out, I found something. Everyone stops the line. They're like, photographer, I mark my line, and I run over, and I do it quick, and I run back. And I think doing that for a couple of weeks really caught the eye of the field director, who I didn't realize was the field director at the time. And then we broke into groups of four 
And I got put in a team with archaeologists that were seasoned archaeologists. And then I got pulled to the side and this man's talking to me saying, you know, we had an idea to put this person in charge because she has a master's. And I know you only have your BA, but I think you're more capable than she is. So I'm going to make you a crew chief. Are you up for it? Man, my heart jumped. I said, what? What is this new task that I've never done before? How can I be better than a person with an MA? I took it. And after that, for maybe three years, my team, any team member you gave me, our team was known as Team Kickass because I wanted to be so good at this new task that was given to me. I timed how long it took us to get to point A to point B so I can figure out when to give time, um, time breaks, how much water everyone should take. I timed it so I knew how long it would take us to finish how many transects. And then I knew how many sites we would record by the end of the day. And doing that ahead of time really set myself and my team up for success. And that all led to just one person giving me that opportunity over someone with a master's. You know, that is, that is such a, uh, I, I almost, I almost want to say a common story that we hear on this podcast, right? Like that you, you always hear that. And, and we should always know this. We should all know this as a field by now that the, the degree and the letters behind your name don't necessarily determine what type of person or leader or archaeologist or worker or whatever task you're given, what type of thing you're going to be. I mean, that's largely determined by the person themselves, right? And their willingness to learn and improve and do new things because archaeology is literally not rocket science, right? You might have to go to, to college to actually learn rocket science or to be a, a medical doctor or something like that because, you know, cadavers are hard to find. So, you know, you got to go to college where they have them in, in, in great supply. But archaeology... You can learn it by going to the library. You can learn it by doing the work. You can learn it by asking questions. You can learn it by reading. You can learn it by doing all these things. And I think the one thing that a graduate degree might give somebody that you may be difficult to come by on your own, especially if you're working full time, you know, with a company and you're doing, you know, you're constantly doing field work and things like that, is you might, might, might get a little bit more understanding or a different way of thinking about archaeological theory and the, and the way all this kind of comes together, right? That's kind of what a graduate degree might give you. But again, it's not something that can't be learned. And I think if somebody works in this field long enough, like you have, Linda, that that can also be just, I mean, if you don't learn that just just by being there, then you're not paying attention, right? <laughs> like if you don't learn that just by attrition, just by simply existing in this field for long enough, even if somebody was just a, you know, a, a, a shovel test digging field tech for the last 20 years, you're still going to learn a lot of things about how all this comes together just by, you know, listening to conversations and participating in that stuff. So that, that longevity and time in the field will give you that the same thing that I think you could get from a graduate degree as far as knowledge and understanding goes. So I don't know. It's weird in this field that we're even still having this conversation. And and I know that you need to have a graduate degree in some cases to do certain things just from a legality standpoint and sometimes from a credibility standpoint, unfortunately. But as far as a aptitude in the field standpoint, that really is down to the person and their willingness to, to just be better. You know what I mean, Heather? Yeah, I totally agree. I think that... You know, the, the one thing that kind of hurts us, I think, in this field is that this idea that an archaeologist has to be good at every single thing. And, you know, there, right. you, we can have like amazing project managers, great people in the field. And you know what? There's people that are really good at theory and they're the ones that, let's say, create background contexts. They are the ones that maybe, you know, inform research designs and um, more complex research designs. But 
to think that everybody has to be good at that. I mean, there's people with PhDs that are not good at that. So, you know, this this concept that you have to have all the um, every single trick in the bag of tricks uh, in mm-hmm. order to be successful in CRM is really uh, short sighted. And I think it 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 hurts our our uh, profession. And um, and it is in a way it's it's a gateway. I mean, it's, it's something that people use to keep others from being able to move forward. And I do think that. With that said, you know, Linda and I have talked, it is a graduate degree is something that she wants. The thing is, is that it's, it's so difficult to do when you're super, when you're successful, you're busy. And when you're Mm -hmm. busy, it's hard to, to do that. It's hard to go to graduate school, right? I I was offered an opportunity to get my master's when I was at my previous company. And one of the things that was shared with me is you need your master's if you want to move up in the company and get more money. And I was like, you know, I don't know if that's true. Because I had three colleagues that were told the same thing and they all went and got their master's. And when they completed it, they stayed in the same position. And it got to Mm -hmm. the point where they were so just upset at the fact that they just spent two years committed to getting this master's and coming back, hoping to get a position that was commiserate with their new new degree and didn't get it, stayed at the same pay. If anything, they got 1% raise and then ended up leaving. And I just didn't want that to be my history. I didn't want to commit all this money, all this time and being stressed out about the, you know, I'd be working full time still. And then having this degree that got me nowhere within the company. You have to look at the ROI of it because the master's degree is going to cost you a minimum of $30,000, depending on where you go. It might cost less, just, just depending, but that $30,000, if you get a, you know, two, three, 4% raise, even uh, on the high end, because you now have a new position and then factoring in progressive raises for the next 10 to 15 years, assuming you even stayed at the same company, which is statistically unlikely, then how long would it take you to even pay back that degree? You know, by, by that time, has it been worth it? You know, has, was it worth it to, you know, basically have status quo and have all the student loans and, and that to pay back just to have your name on a bunch of reports, but you're still kind of doing the same job. I don't know. I don't know if there's an ROI there, Doug. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to, Throw it out there, uh, UK master's degree, only one year. If if you're only looking for letters, uh, again, you're gonna get that snobbery of it's it's a one year or whatever. But you pay our well, okay, a couple of years ago it was like two hundred bucks. It's probably like four hundred bucks now. You pay um, a service to validate it for the U.S. and it counts for your Secretary of Interior. And you know you can do a one year master's and. The dollar to pound is really good right now, so you're you're not going to be spending thirty thousand. And there are some online masters from mm-hmm. a couple of universities, so I, I think you can get that number down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, totally. Heather, that's what I was going to say. You know, with like state, like state, a state school masters, I I don't think it'd be thirty grand. The only thing I'd throw out there is just less time. Like if you're thinking of like two years of your life. Or, you know, if you're doing it part-time, four years, four to six, because it's two to three. Yeah, like, I'd say it's not necessarily the... Okay, so in a sense, like, money is just an abstraction of time, of your time doing a certain task. So, in a sense, you might be actually making a lot of money that you wouldn't actually see in your bank account by just spending less time doing it. Because, again, I would have to say... Linda, you're probably learning so much more on your own than what you would might learn in a program. It'd be wasting your time to do certain things. That that's that's 
possibly a, an outcome. Um, I don't know, but I'll let other people jump in now and s- sell that uh, state school California master system, <laughs> of which I know very little about. So I'll listen to Andrew and Heather. From from personal experience, I went to graduate school. I didn't pay a penny for it. Hmm, uh, it go. was through scholarships. Just I was a single mom. And some of it was, you know, because I didn't have a whole lot of money. So there was an option there, which actually is mm-hmm. kind of a trait that many archaeologists are going to have anyway. So that work that in your favor. If you don't have money, you can take advantage of both merit scholarships, but also need scholarships. And between the two and, you know, I was working full time and but I made it happen. I was a single mom. It, it was a hard couple of years, but I'm so glad I did it. And you know, it's certainly, even if you're paying money for it, I think you, you could, let's say you didn't get any scholarship. I think you could pull off a master's if you're working and there's no reason why you can't work. I'm maybe full time, maybe not for some, but you can work and, and do a master's program. There's so many, especially in California, so many master's programs that allow you to just do classes at night and, you mm-hmm. know, get smart about it. Do a project that you're working on, talk to your company, see if you yep. can you know, do both, have your, your research also be something you're working on for, for your job and get, get the most out of, out of all your efforts. Yep. I've seen people do exactly what Heather is talking about. And, and worst case in, you know, the California state system, I believe per year, it's going to be somewhere around eight grand, you know, for, for tuition. So that's, that's worst case, but I had a similar story to Heather. I think I probably only paid a total of like four or five grand total because I, I had some scholarships mm. and stuff that went with it. So, you know, your mileage may vary, but my point is it's not, uh, you know, 30 grand sounds uh, too high to me. Right. Right. All right. So we're going to take it to break, but uh, I, I would say, you know, if you are working for a, a larger company, see if they have some sort of tuition assistance or something like that. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they will pay you to go to grad school. And, and that's actually a really good situation, obviously, because you can be guaranteed a job when you get back pretty much right. because they're not going to pay for you to go to school and then give your job to somebody else because exactly. <laughs> so, that's always the fear. And, you know, uh, we'll find out on the other side of the break, but I know some programs, you know, obviously a lot of schools these days hand out laptops to their students and things like that. So that could be a benefit. My only knowledge of community college comes from the show community. So we'll find out on the other side of the break if um, Andrew's school gives you a paintball gun or if you have to buy your own. We'll find Two out that guns. on the other side of the break. Okay. Two Two paintball paintball guns. guns. (laughs) Back in a minute. Welcome back to the Sierra Mark podcast, episode 246. And Bill, I'm interested to hear your opinion because we haven't heard from you much this episode. We keep running over you. So let's have it. No, it's great. Everybody else has the, we're we're like a hive mind. All the questions I would ask, others are asking. (laughs) Going back to the uh, question about graduate school, though. I mean, the thing that you get when you go for a master's is, actually trying to think about archaeology rather than, you know, 50% of your time on hogwash classes that you'll never actually use in archaeology. And I mean, a few years ago, I wrote a blog post where I calculated how useful the classes that I took through all my years were. (laughs) (laughs) And at the undergrad level, maybe like maybe 30% of the classes I took as an undergrad, I learned a lot and Uh, you know, ever were applied in my career as an archaeologist. But when you look at the table that shifts over to graduate school, a lot of those, I learned a lot 
And, you know, they were really relevant and applicable to my career in cultural resources. And so that's what you actually get. You, you shave off that two years of just getting a well-rounded whatever, and then you only focus on the other stuff. And then your, your entire course structure changes. If you go to a functional university where, you know, you're forced to actually think and talk and debate and Mm -hmm. consider things rather than just you know, learning about this, then putting it on a Scantron sheet or, you know, short answer gibberish paragraph about, you know, what you learned about this and that. I mean, if you go somewhere, you have a great instructor or any instructor that's worth their salt, you're going to be actually trying to mimic what you'll do for your thesis, mimic what you'll do for your dissertation. So you'll be writing actually decent stuff. And, you know, the best classes in graduate school are the ones where your assignments are essentially to write grant proposals, which is a baby, you know, simulator of trying to write a proposal anyway, or at least a research design. So that's, that's really the benefit that you get out of a graduate program and like the cost benefit analysis. I don't, I don't have all the statistics. Doug's the the person who knows all that stuff, but we're at this place where it's not just archeology. span All these other industries are looking for people who have graduate degrees and college degrees. And it's really hard to get into, you know, most things because all the people who are the hiring managers, they all have an MBA. They all have an MFA. Like they all have different, you know, masters and graduate degrees. And so they seriously do. The glass ceiling exists in pretty much every industry and they do discriminate against people who don't have those higher degrees. And so archaeology is really bad because there's not very many of us. Those degrees can really turn into a serious bottleneck and something that keeps your career from moving forward because all the people above absolutely discriminate against people who have, you know, don't have a degree, but it's, mm. it's widespread. And so I, I don't really know the way around it. Functionally, we don't actually need a graduate degree to manage Best Buy or whatever, but it's sure. getting to the point where that's, that's just the reality of the United States. Okay. Heather. I agree. I agree. As far as I hope, you know, I haven't been in school for a while, but I hope that we're not diluting the graduate degree. I'm sure that in some ways we are just by the fact that we're making it, like you said, we're almost, you know, the the master's degree in some cases is, is the new bachelor's, right? But this podcast isn't about you know, saying that a uh, master's degree is not valuable. It certainly is valuable. I mean, there are things that in, in, in uh, your undergraduate that you're really just learning the information, synthesizing the information, spitting it back out. But like Bill was saying, when you go to graduate school, you're really marinating in it. You are learning how to come up with your own thought, not just, you know, ingest the information and spit it back out so that you can show that you remember it, but that you are actually creating new thought and you're able to analyze. And I do think that is something that can be learned. I mean, that's something Linda has learned over time. I do think it would be fun just to see Linda, you know, go into graduate school and be able to do that in the environment of an academic research rather than just from the regulatory side. So the one the one Mm -hmm. thing that, you know, Linda is is very good at is that she has a regulatory mind. And so she can Mm -hmm. take the the regulatory requirements and she can look at a project and see where they apply and how they apply and what really does apply and what doesn't. And that in and of itself is, is graduate level work. It really is. It would be fun though, to, for her to have that opportunity to do that from an archeological perspective, but it is certainly something, a skill that you can learn over time and experience in CRM, you know, but it is something that 
that needs to happen. And it might be a little more difficult to do without a graduate degree. Linda has accomplished it, but it, it's that's not for everyone. Right. Linda, Linda, yes. this, I, I didn't want to tell you this, but this is an intervention. This is an intervention <laughs> to get you to do an MA. And the reason why I say that is because you you have all those skills. It's so funny just listening to you and listening to your story. You have so many of the tough skills, what I call like the black arts, you know, that, that nobody necessarily teaches you that you have to learn just by living it. And, and I do worry that in years to come, you will feel more and more of that glass ceiling. And why not, you know, sort of think seriously about getting a master's locally or something like that or focusing on that because you have so much going for you. You could, like we said earlier, you could use one of your project as your master's thesis and then you would you would literally have it all you know so i i wonder what's your take on that or how do you feel about that you know i was fortunate enough to get the opportunities to learn on the job all the things that you would learn in the master's program i learned throughout my career i even got um, on the rpa just with a ba because i had the skill set that was commiserate with someone with a you know, master's degree or PhD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't pursue a master's before because I was getting work. I was never sh- like, a, there was never a period where I didn't have work and I was getting raises, steady raises. And, you know, people were reaching out to me for a position. And I felt if I can do this work without having to go get a master's, then I'll continue. But if at any point I feel like this, this the ceiling is not going to break, this is it mm-hmm. for me then I would consider it. Fortunately for me, I'm in a position now where I can financially support myself working full-time and pursuing a master's. And that's why that's something that I am seriously considering now. I just need the letters. I don't necessarily care about where I'm going to get it because I already have a position where I'm leading projects. You of know? course. Of course. And that that's sort of what I would even recommend, you know, just do something locally. Again, like Heather and I were talking earlier, sort of the state school world or this, you know, wherever you may be living there, there could be something nearby where you could almost you could almost make your own masters. And my point with all this is just that you've been doing so great. I wonder if five years from now, 10 years from now, you might have a little of that bitterness creep in because I've seen other people in your position that are a decade or two, maybe later, and they get that bitterness of like, I know all that stuff, but I didn't have a master's, you know? And it's like, I want to make sure you don't fall down that path of darkness. Yeah. I'm always in a path of darkness. I was a black growing <laughs> up, but, um, you know, I've never felt bitter because I always had the right. opportunity. I, I was always, um, considered like an asset. Oh yeah. It was just with, you know, one person I'm working with who's like my mentor, they would always give me opportunities. Hey, let me show you how to do this. So mm-hmm. I was getting free education without having to go to school. So right. I, I just rode that rode that um, train and just took it all took it all the way. Um, but again, uh, just, that's not to say that I won't get a master's because mm-hmm. that's I've done everything else. Why not? Right. That's kind of how I felt for you. It's just listening. You know, I'm like, oh, hey, it's time, and you could bring a really great aspect to those like little masters classes too, where you, where you can be like, no, I lived this, you guys. And it's actually like this, you know, and you could have really interesting discussions where you could help other. Nice. Nice. Doug, go ahead with your comment real quick. I, I was just to say like, you know, the people who are going to be bitter are going to be bitter. Like I, I, I don't think, 
they were going to find something that was going to hold them back. Because I, I know plenty of people with degrees who are super bitter about archaeology and like, you know, oh, it, it, it's horrible, it's horrible. And you're just like, man, just leave, just leave. You, you can walk away from it. And they're like, no, no, I could never walk away. And you're like, man, you just, you, it's a personality. So I'm not sure necessarily, like, I understand what Andrew's saying about some people feel that regret, but I suspect in like, 98%, 99%, maybe 100% of those cases, those people would be bitter with a degree. Oh, yeah. They'd mm. be bitter eating Fruit Loops. I know what you mean. Yeah. This reminded me of a conversation I had recently with somebody who has an MA and is having a difficult time moving up. They're stuck in the field and they want more. They got an MA so they could move on. And so just having an MA doesn't always isn't, you know, like this all of a sudden, you know, the heavens open up and now you have everything that you ever wanted. So it's not the magic pill, but it certainly helps. And you know what, if you don't have the skill sets, the skill set that Linda has, an MA is not going to help you. It might help you in some companies that only look at the degree, period. But in general, you're not going to be a success just with an MA. And I think we all know that. The one thing I did want to talk about is that, you know, It's not just the degree aspect that allows you to be successful and to move up in CRM and to make more money and be given new responsibilities. It is setting yourself up to learn new skill sets. So you have to understand that when you are this conversation I have with this this one person, they're in the field a lot. They're very good in the field. The thing is, is that companies have you know, the largest amount of people that are working on a project are usually the field work. And so the hourly rate that can be proposed for a project is going to be lower just because you have so many people in the field. So if mm-hmm. you are somebody that start is in the field only, you have a cap. You have an MA. I don't care if you have a PhD. If you are in the field primarily, you are going to have a hard time breaking that ceiling because you will never make it to a point where what you get paid hourly has to make sense to what they bill the client. So if you are only doing field work primarily and you're only capable or you've only shown yourself to be capable, maybe you're capable of more, but you haven't shown yourself to be capable of more, you are going to be stuck both monetarily and in you know, your, your ascension in the company. So people need to think about that, whether you have an MA or you have a BA, you have to think about how are you setting yourself up skill-wise to move into those billing rates that can allow for a higher rate. Therefore, you get paid more. You know, I think you bring up an interesting point, Heather, because a, a lot of times uh, and throughout this entire show and, and the whole podcast, we've talked about how, you know, the degree doesn't make the person necessarily. But degrees in this field, like many fields, are just a they're a tick in the box. They're a requirement, you know, and, and one of the things I'm doing now there's a, you know, in, in a lot of industries, they have obviously project managers. And in order to even be considered for a project manager position outside of archaeology, you need to have a project manager certificate, right, to understand the different types of project management styles. And, you know, there's whole books and, and everything in industry on being a project manager and and having that knowledge of, you know, how to manage projects. And we manage projects very differently in archaeology, although I think a lot of archaeologists benefit from some of this training outside the industry, just to understand a little bit better how to how to organize, so to speak. 
But that being said, it's a tick in the box like anything else. And yet we seem to think about it very differently here in, in archaeology and especially in CRM, you know, about what it means to have that degree, about whether you should get that degree, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in some cases, depending on what you want to do, you do just have to do it if that's where you even want to go in your career, because that's the first question you have to ask is what I want to do something that requires this particular progression or is yes. what I'm doing or my, or my future goals amenable to what I'm doing now, you know, yes. is that okay? Because that's, you don't want to go down that road if you don't have to. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, thing. you know, this, that actually brings up a really good point because when Linda and I work together, we, we know that, you know, everybody has a sweet spot yeah. of where they're happy in their career. And right. Linda loves being in the field and she's so good at it. But she's also very good at the other aspects. And so, you know, we found that, you know, her being in the field for a certain percentage of time is just makes makes Linda happy. <laughs> and <Yeah>. um, <laughs> Well, and let's be honest, Linda, I don't know how old you are, uh, but being in the field for 16 years, I can probably, you know, ballpark it. You know, you're not going to be young forever. Right. And sometimes people who, you know, start exiting from the field more so than they are in the field. It's, it's a lot of times just because our bodies, you know, simply can't handle that level of activity anymore. Right. And, and in order to be able to still have your options open, once that starts to happen, or once you start to recognize that within yourself, and hopefully before that starts to happen, you start, you know, making a move to, to have less field time. So you're not, you know, like some archaeologists basically crippled for the rest of your life in, in one way or another, whether it's chronic back pain or, you know, knees yeah. or, you know, something like that. Hopefully you recognize that beforehand. But that is, again, one of the advantages if you need it for, for where you're going to move out of the field. Now, of course, there's other ways to move out of the field as well. Maybe um, maybe that secondary report writing activity, uh, and I only mean secondary as in your name is not on the front of the report, but you're doing much of the writing. If you're at a company that's doing enough work, that could be full time, you know, if you wanted it to be. And if they allowed that, that could be just something you did all the time where it's maybe it's a little bit of field work occasionally, or even going the GIS route for some people is a way to go because GIS is predominantly office work, uh, for, no, for a lot of companies. And, well, you know, yeah, I mean, there's that too. So you got to take all that into account, but anyway. It's a good point you brought up because when I started out, I made sure to curate my career according to what my body was capable of doing. So sure. in the beginning of my career, I spent 70% of the time in the field and the other 30% in lab and reporting. And I remember mm -hmm. my supervisor at the time, you know, sat down with me and said, Hey, Linda, maybe it's time to consider spending more time reporting. And my response was pretty simple. I said, Use me while you can when my body's capable, because later in life, I'm going to shy away from field work because I won't be able to handle it anymore. And sure, sure enough, I'm feeling it. You know, I'm definitely feeling aches and pains that, you know, it's taking much longer to recuperate from. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, then I switched from 70% to, you know, 60 and I kept going down. So now my time spent in the field is like maybe 30% and the rest 70% reporting. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I want to touch on is job security. You can't just be focused on field work, right? Because if that field work dries out, what else are you going to do? What is the project manager going to put you in? So I made sure to not only know how to do field work, lead crews, excavate. I knew how to do lab work. I knew how to coordinate monitoring. I knew mm -hmm. how to you know, do um, invoices, all of those things. So when the field work was done for the season, I jumped to all those other tasks. And that kept me afloat. And it opened up a range of skill sets that I didn't know I can do. But I learned it, and now I applied all of these things that I've learned to my management position now. Yeah. 
That's great. That's great. And it's taking all those skills that, you know, and, and not only just taking those skills, but having the, I guess, ability and desire to raise your hand when somebody says, I need this done, or, or if they don't say, I need this done, recognizing that something needs to be done and saying, hey, I can do that. Can you teach me how to do it? And then now I'll know how to do that. And that's really what, you know, puts that other quiver in your, uh, you know, in your, uh, what do you, what do you hold arrows in? Your quiver, I guess. I don't know. Another arrow in your quiver. Oh, <laughs> arrow really in your quiver. <laughs> it really fell apart quickly. But you know what I mean, right? Like it's it's just one more tool that you have, and and you're not just going to get stuff handed to you in this field. There's too many people. There's too many things. There's too many egos. So you have to take what you want, and you have to you have to sometimes create those opportunities for yourself. And it sounds like you've done that. So and to do that with humility, that's one the one um, skill set. And you know, obviously, I'm. I'm a huge Linda fan, <laughs> but you know, the one thing is just being likable, you know, just yeah. having a humble attitude, not coming in and demanding certain things and, you know, just having the humility. There are going to be times you're going to have to stand up for yourself and you're not going to move forward without doing that. You do have to yeah. push that envelope, but you need to know when it's time to sit back and learn and say, I don't know something. And when it's time to move forward and being assertive sure. and, and then being a champion for others, not just uh, focusing on your own career. I think that's something that sometimes we get tunnel vision on because we're, mm-hmm. you know, especially for those that are very driven and we forget that, you know, along the way, these are our colleagues. These are people that you're going to run into. It's a very small world. And yeah. so it's important, not, not in a manipulative way, but just to have that mindset of, you know, we, when we all, move up together, uh, we're stronger. When you just yeah. have one person who's moving alone and, and moving, you know, up the scale or whatever, or up the ladder, so to speak, and not helping other people up, it, it's, you know, it's, it's not helpful, especially if everybody's trying to do the same thing at the same time. Now you, you know, have, there's only one person go up that ladder at a time, right? So if you're working <laughs> together as a team, it's, you know, long, long down the road uh, will be, will be beneficial. Nice. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion and we appreciate Linda coming on to give her uh, honest opinions and, and, you know, direction for where her career is and things like that. And I hope people learn from this and maybe took some inspiration from it. If you've got any comments on this, please leave them wherever you found the show or send them directly to Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or some of the contact information for our hosts is in the show notes if you look down at your device. Or you can just go to the artpodnet.com website, find the Sierra Mark podcast and this episode and leave a comment there. Plenty of places to do that. Or just on, you know, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you, uh, wherever you're seeing this right now, we'd like to hear other people's opinions on, you know, whether or not you think you should get a degree, the advantages of it, you know, if you did, and maybe it was useful or not useful, that, that would be uh, good information for everybody to know as well. And we'll always keep your comments anonymous. So with that, we'll see you guys in two weeks. And again, thanks to Linda and all our hosts for joining us this week. And we'll be back next time. Goodbye. Oh, God, Doug. All right. <laughs> there you <laughs> That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website 
or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks. Everyone. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs> you guys still wait for each other. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. It was fun. I love it. Time to go back to sleep. Thanks, Linda. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.